this is uh, this is pre-message first. Um, I wanted to. I asked John if I could uh, if I could keep one of the announcements uh, to just share from the heart from myself, and that is the one that you may have seen in the Friday newsletter um, about the men's prayer time. We we live in a, a cultural moment. Maybe you're tired of that phrase already. Um, in which you may have noticed there is a lot of opportunity for disagreement. In fact, we live in multiple cultural moments when there's lots of opportunity for disagreement. One of the one of the values that we've had at Grace is that we want to be willing to accept one another fully uh, with all of the remaining secondary agreements so long as we join on the basis of the gospel. Uh, and that's what we really want to try to do. In some ways, in some ways previously, we've, we've had the luxury of doing that without it making a great deal of functional difference. Uh, we could just sort of agree to disagree in our minds, but in action, uh, it, it didn't really make much of a difference. <clears throat> in some respects, it's starting to make more of a difference. And so there is more opportunity for that disagreement to come to the surface and for it to impact our relationships with each other. And I realized that I just made the greatest mistake a pastor can make, and that is I forgot my Bible. It's right here. <clears throat> The second mistake is to not open it. Um, Paul, in 1 Timothy 2, wants something. And so he describes it to Timothy. He, said it, he says in 1 Timothy 2.8, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Do you ever wonder when you share your own views on Whatever the cultural moment is right now, do you ever wonder if anyone's actually listening? Do you wonder if you're sort of speaking into the wind or into the internet or wherever you're speaking, and you wonder, is anybody actually being impacted by what I'm saying or what I'm asking, or is everybody just kind of waiting for me to be done or waiting for their turn to say something? Do you ever wonder if anybody is actually listening? Someone is. One person, at least, is listening and is prepared to respond. And so, guys in particular, men, uh, I, want us, I want to call us together to, in a special way, over the month of August, to do the thing that Paul desires men in every place to do. To pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. It is interesting that earlier in the passage, the specific thing that Paul has said he wants people to pray for is for rulers and everyone in authority. And if we have anything that we might have an opportunity to disagree about, it might be about which rulers are on the right track and which ones are not on the right track. Well, there are better and worse answers to those questions. The fact is, our God hears us when we ask him on behalf of these leaders. To allow them to lead in such a way that we would be able to live a peaceful and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. So, here's, what, here's, what I, here's how I want to shape our time of praying together. First of all, um, I'll be here at the church at noon on Wednesday 
Lord willing. And so if you would like to be here in person to pray during that time, you are welcome to be here. Uh, Paul does say he wants them in in every place to pray, and so this isn't exactly what he meant, but the fact is we can pray from anywhere, and so we'll be looping this in on a Zoom meeting as well. If, if you're able to call in for 10 minutes and be a part of this, I would love for you men to, to do that, for us to join together as men. The ladies are doing a great job of getting together, doing Zoom, praying together. Uh, it's time for us to step up our game a little bit. And so I want to encourage you, Wednesdays at noon, to join together to pray. What do we pray about? I think you know already. I think you know what to pray about. And I'm going to try to draw that out by asking four questions. And the first question will be, what burdens you right now? What weighs on you? What do you find frustrating? What do you find angering? What are you sad about? What are you scared about? Uh, I want to encourage you men to just reflect on that even for five minutes and to write down the answer. We all have stuff. It's all there. Shows up in our conversations. Shows up in the things that keep us up in the middle of the night. What burdens you? That's what we need to pray about. I think that's what ought to guide the things that we ought to be bringing before the Lord. What burdens you? Next question is, what do you want done about it? We all have things we want done about them. They ought to do this or that. Um, Something needs to change, and somebody needs to be responsible for it. What do you want to see change? That's what we need to be bringing before the one that we know is listening to us. So the third question will be, what have I asked the Lord to do? The fourth question will be for follow-up, how have I seen the Lord respond? I want us to be asking from the heart in such a way that we can be prepared to watch, to see God respond, to see him Protect our relationships with each other from these secondary and important areas in which we sometimes disagree. To help us to live out our fundamental, unchanging unity in Christ. And to ask him to spread that, the, the results of that good news to the world around us and through us. So, men, if you would join me at any time between noon and one on Wednesday, either here in the building or uh, over Zoom, using the same information as, as is available for connecting on Sunday morning. I think that will be a very important time for us together and for our church. Nehemiah 9, verses 1 through 3, actually I'm going to read verses 1 and 2, says this, Now on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. How in the world did they get here? If, if you were here last week or you heard last week's message, then you saw that last week people started to grieve and the leader said, don't do that. This day is holy. This is a day to celebrate what God has done for you. And so they rejoice. And now they've rejoiced and the, the, the end of the feast ended on the 22nd day of the month. It was followed by a solemn assembly on the 23rd day of the month. And here, as best I can tell, we're on the 24th day of the month. So they've finished their feast, their celebration, their party, 
And now here they are with dirt on their heads. What in the world is going on? How in the world did they get here? Is this like Lent starting after Mardi Gras and they've had their fun, but now they have to balance it with seriousness? Don't think that's it at all. I think that the celebrating and now showing up with dirt on their heads and wearing sackcloth, those are very closely related to one another. In fact, the celebration has prepared them now to mourn in a way that matches the character of God, in a way that helps them not to end in despair, like sometimes our mourning causes us to do, but causes them to end where God ends, causes them to end in a place of hope. It really is healthy to ask the question, how did we get here? It's a question that God's people seem to have been asking. They're going to reflect on it in this passage. They asked it in the last passage, in chapter 8, and the answer to the question, how did we get here, resulted in great rejoicing. It resulted in in, in a party that was endorsed by God. And they said, we got here because God mercifully got us here. He rescued our people out of Egypt. He's rescued our people out of exile. And that's why we're here. And we have good reason to rejoice. The, the answer to the question, how did we get here, doesn't only have one answer. It's been a long story with God's people. And so there's more parts to the question, how did we get here, to this particular moment with dirt on our heads in the beginning of chapter 9. Certainly, in one sense, the way they got here was their sin. Their sin collectively. They, they talk about our sin Our sin, meaning our sin, and the sin of those that we belong to. The sins of our fathers, of our ancestors, those who have come before us, those that we're part of, that sin, and we see it in ourselves, has gotten us to this rather disastrous moment in history. A place where some of the disaster has been miraculously lifted. Some of it still remains. In fact, it's, it's described uh, in, in many ways. In Psalm 126, Peter preached on this passage uh, a few months ago. You see a picture in which the people of God say, it's absolutely amazing to see what God has done. And we need God to do more. They look at yesterday, they look at today, they say, we, we, we're not done yet. And they look to the future not on the basis of their own commitments, but on the basis of God's promises. This is Psalm 126. It's six verses and really worth reading because it matches where God's people find themselves now. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, that's Jerusalem, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. If you've followed Nehemiah so far, you've seen that's exactly where they are. The nations are watching. They've built the wall. God has given them favor in the eyes of the king. There's good reason for the nations to look at them and say, the favor of the God of the universe is on these people. They say, it has been, and we are glad. And we're not done. 
Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. We're still in a bit of a desert experience, and we need you to bring your streams and refresh us. And we trust that you will. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. So we anticipate even greater joy as we look to God to restore us further. <clears throat> when they ask the question, how did we get here? Part of that question is answered by their sin and the sin of their ancestors. But when they stop and say, how did we get here? And they reflect on the fact, that, wait a minute, how did we get to a place where we are even here to ask the question? How is it possible that we are here at all? We're here in trouble as a result of our sin, but we are here and not done away with for another reason, for a reason that is even stronger than, than our own sin and its ability to ruin us. That's what's going to get the last word in this passage. That's what they're going to see as having the last word. It's what's going to get the last word. And it is where they are going to look last. In fact, in, in my copy of the Bible, in the ESV, at the beginning of the section we're going to go to next in chapter 9, in uh, verse, well, actually at the beginning of the chapter, the, 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 the caption that the editors have put in is, the people of Israel confess their sin which is absolutely true, and they have good reason to do it, to be honest with God about their sin and about its right results. It's also really important to recognize that it is not the only thing they confess. It's not the only thing they acknowledge. It's not the only thing they give weight to. In fact, it's not the thing that they give the last word to. They acknowledge their sin, but there is something far better that gets the last word, something that finishes story. I want you to listen for it. As, as I read the middle section of the passage, um, I, I'm not going to spend a lot of time unpacking it. It's a fairly, fairly long passage. Um, but I mainly want you to listen because it's a story. It's a, it's a fairly self-explanatory story. Even if you're not familiar with the history of Israel in the Old Testament, then most of what's said, you can sort of get the gist. If you've been reading the Bible for years, like many of you have, then most of this is going to be things that you have heard before. They tell the Bible's story about themselves. And there are some big themes that I want you to watch for as I read through verses 6 through, through verse 31. I'm going to read through the whole thing. And there are some big, big themes to watch for. The first one that frames this whole thing is the fact that God is righteous. That God has done everything right. He's made all the right choices. Everything he's done has been just. It's been fair. It's been good. And that's going to be described early on. That God has done everything right because, verse. this will be in verse 8, you are righteous. You never make wrong or unjust decisions. You're righteous. And, and God has demonstrated that righteousness 
not only by being just, in terms of basic justice, he's shown it by being good. And we're going to see over and over again that God has been good to his people, in, especially in two ways. He's been good to them by leading them, by telling them what they need to know, by being clear with them, by not leaving them to, the, to themselves to figure out how do we do this relationship with God thing. He's told them how, and you'll see that over and over in the passage as you watch. He's also been good by providing for them. And he has provided in marvelously generous ways. You're going to see that especially in the middle of the story. Just this rich generosity where God has given them really far more than they need just to survive. He's given them much to enjoy. And if you know the story, you know what some of the other big themes are. You know that you're going to see rebellion on the part of God's people. And it's rebellion that's ridiculous. It makes absolutely no sense. With the abundance that God has given them by leading and providing, it makes no sense that they would respond to God this way. And yet they have. And we're going to see that God has made a name for himself. We're going to see what that name is all about in the big theme that gets the last word in the story. So I'd encourage you to watch for that as well. I'd encourage you to read along also, if you're using a sanctuary copy of the Bible, then the section I'm going to read out of Nehemiah 9 starts on page 404. I'm going to go ahead and read uh, verse 6 through verse 31. The people rise and they pray to God, you are the Lord, you alone. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens with all their host, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve all of them, and the host of heaven worships you. You are the Lord, the God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you and made with him the covenant to give to his offspring the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Jebusite, and the Girgashite, and you have kept your promise, for you are righteous. And you saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt, and heard their cry at the Red Sea, and performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh, and all his servants, and all the people of the land. For you knew that they acted arrogantly against our fathers. And you made a name for yourself, as it is to this day. And you divided the sea before them, so that they went through the midst of the sea on dry land, and you cast their pursuers into the depths as a stone into mighty waters. By a pillar of cloud you led them in the day, and by a pillar of fire in the night to light for them the way in which they should go. You came down to Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven and gave them right rules and true laws, good statutes and commandments. And you made them know your holy Sabbath and commanded them commandments and statutes and a law by Moses, your servant. You gave them bread from heaven for their hunger, and you brought water for them out of the rock for their thirst, and you told them to go in and possess the land that you had sworn to give them. But they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them, but they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. 
but you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and did not forsake them. Even when they had made for themselves a golden calf and said, This is your God who brought you up out of Egypt and had committed great blasphemies. You in your mercies did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud to lead them in the way did not depart from them by day, nor the pillar of fire by night to light for them the way in which they should go. You gave your good spirit to instruct them and did not withhold your manna from their mouth and gave them water for their thirst. Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness and they lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out and their feet did not swell. And you gave them kingdoms and peoples and allotted to them every corner. So they took possession of the land of Sihon, king of Heshbon, and the land of Og, king of Bashan. You multiplied their children as the stars of heaven, and you brought them into the land that you had told their fathers to enter and possess. So the descendants went in and possessed the land, and you subdued before them the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, and gave them into their hand with their kings and the peoples of the land, that they might do with them as they would. And they captured fortified cities and a rich land, and took possession of houses full of good things, cisterns already hewn, vineyards, olive orchards, and fruit trees in abundance. So they ate and were filled and became fat and delighted themselves in your great goodness. Nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their back and killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you and they committed great blasphemies. Therefore you gave them into the hand of their enemies, who made them suffer. And in the time of their suffering they cried out to you, and you heard from heaven. And according to your great mercies you gave them saviors, who saved them from the hand of their enemies. But after they had rest, they did evil again before you. And you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies, so that they had dominion over them. Yet when they turned and cried to you, you heard from heaven. And many times you delivered them according to your mercies. And you warned them in order to turn them back to your way. Yet they acted presumptuously and did not obey your commandments, but sinned against your rules, which, if a person does them, he shall live by them. And they turned a stubborn shoulder and stiffened their neck and would not obey. Many years you bore with them and warned them by your spirit through your prophets, yet they would not give ear. Therefore you gave them into, into the hand of the peoples of the lands. Nevertheless, in your great mercies you did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. See sort of how the story shapes up. Start with all of creation. Everything is as it should be. All of creation worships the God who created creation and gets to assign to it its purpose. And all of creation does worship God as it should. He gets to decide what creation is for. And he has shown what creation is for as well. We're told in verse 6, You are the Lord, you alone. And then we're told in verse 7, that God does not intend 
to rule outside of relationship with his people. You are the Lord, you alone. And then in verse 7, you are the Lord, the God who chose Abram. So here is a God who makes people in his image in order to bring them into relationship with himself, in order for them to dwell with him, to live with him, to have fellowship with him, to enjoy him. And then you see things slowly from there unravel. You see God be graciously good, and you see the people rebel. You see him be incredibly generous in verses 22 through 25. And then from the perfect order at the beginning of the passage, everything devolves into absolute chaos, just a cycle of dysfunction. God is good and saves them and they rebel again. And they call out and he saves them and they rebel again and it happens over and over and over. And you wonder, where does the story end? Who gets the last word? You may have seen in the very last verse of this recounting of their story, which is a very biblical recounting of the story where the last word lands. Nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. Their negative response to God has not had a bad influence on him. He has responded justly. He has responded with severity when necessary, and his heart toward them has not changed. He continues to hold out to them mercy and to bring it to them when they ask for it. So they've reflected on this story. And because they've done it in such a biblical way, they have been able to see things that they might not know if God had not revealed them about himself. This fact that they didn't escape by luck, they didn't escape because they had paid their dues, they didn't escape because they were smart enough, they were brought back once again because of the steadfast love of their God who has called them into covenant relationship with him. So they're starting on solid ground as they've made this, this confessing reflection on their story, a story that they're very much a part of, that they're very much responsible for. And so they summarize here in verses 32 through 37. Say what, what? They've asked, how did we get here? And now they're asking, where do we go from here? You have to ask, how do we get here first? And then, because they are here, they can ask, where do we go from here? And they can ask it with hope. The summary that they give comes with a so, with a so what? With a, with a therefore. There's a therefore in verse 32. Now, therefore, our God, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love. So God, we're, we're coming to you as the God who is right in everything you do. Everything belongs to you. You make all the right choices, and you have been steadfastly merciful to us. It's happened over and over again. In view of who you are, we're going to ask you to do something. What do they ask? <clears throat> There's one explicit request and it's in verse 32. Let not all the hardship seem little to you that has come upon us. 
is hardship that they deserve, hardship they've earned, that God has been right in bringing on them. And they're very clear about that in verse 33. You have been righteous in all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully, and we have acted wickedly. They haven't earned anything by their hardship. They haven't sufficiently paid for their sins. That's not what they mean by saying, please don't let all this seem little to you. They're coming to him as the God who has proven himself merciful to say, this hurts right now. This is hard. The only way that we can possibly come to you and ask you for mercy in our pain is because you've proven who you are toward us. And so we're asking you to do that. We are asking you to care for us in the pain that we have earned. In fact, they they expand on what that pain looks like for them right now in verses 36 and 37. When, When they say, here, what's the hardship that they're going through that they want God to recognize as something significant for them? Verse 36, behold, we are slaves this day in the land that you gave to our fathers to enjoy its fruit and its good gifts. Behold, we are slaves. And its rich yield goes to the kings whom you have set over us because of our sins. They rule over our bodies and over our livestock as they please. And we are in great distress. And we're asking that you would care for us in the pain that we have earned. We are a bunch of hungry, sack-wearing dirtheads. And we're still here because you have not made an end of us. So we're asking you, with all the good you've done for us already, to restore our fortunes, O God, like streams in the Negev. We know you're the kind of God who does this for his people. That's the name that you have made for yourself. That's who you have revealed yourself to be from the very beginning. Since just before this disastrous golden calf incident, when Moses said, I want to know who you are, I want you to show me your glory, God says, I will. I'm going to tell you who I am. I'm going to speak my name before you. And when he does, he does this in Exodus 34. And we've returned to this passage many, many times because it is a picture of the gospel as it shows up in the Old Testament. It's worth returning to again. Exodus 34, when God reveals himself, when, as it were, he speaks his name, he says in Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7, the Lord passed before him, before Moses, and proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. Because that's who I am. I deal justly with sin, and somehow, in a way that you will learn eventually, my people I forgive iniquity and transgression and sin. That's the name that God has made for himself. And so we see it repeated sort of throughout this history. You've made a name for yourself. Verse 10. 
You are a God, verse, middle of verse 17, you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, straight from Exodus 34, and you did not forsake them. And then again, last word of the story in verse 31, in your great mercies you did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. So they are sorry. They have good reason to be sorry. They have good reason to be sad for the sin of their ancestors and for their own sin. And they don't land on we're sorry. They land where God lands. They land on have mercy. And have mercy really means at its core restore us to relationship with you. To walking, working, fellowship, relationship with you. That's actually what they're going to cooperate with in the very next chapter. Because God has already set up, uh, set up a, a way for them to have relationship with him. We call it a program, I suppose. A way of arranging a relationship with them. And it's called a covenant. And they're going to revisit their responsibilities in that covenant in the very next chapter. They're going to say, you, you have arranged a way for us as sinful people to go on in relationship with you and we want to go there. And we know that we can because you have proven yourself merciful to sinners. <clears throat> Robert Murray McShane was a Scottish pastor a couple hundred years ago. And one of the wise things he said was, For every look you take at self, take ten looks at Christ. We need to look at ourselves. We need to examine ourselves. We need to ask the question, are there ways in which uh, the trouble I'm experiencing is something I have gotten myself into? Perhaps it's something other people have done to me. Sometimes it's just a matter of looking at what goes on inside my own heart, inside my own mind, taking some time to reflect on it and to say, if God had left me to that alone, where would I be today? If I were simply left to myself, what would my life be like today? It is a terrifying thing for me to think about what I would be like if I had been left to my own inclinations, to my own desire to be my own God and for everyone around me to revolve around me. It would be a hell. But for every look at yourself, take ten looks at Christ. The people here, even in the Old Testament, are standing in a good place, pre-Christ, to do that, to look at the character of God as he has revealed it. And that is what we want to do as well. And we have the privilege of doing it in a Christian way, of actually looking at Jesus as he has been revealed to us, as the answer to the question, how is it that the God who who will not leave the guilty unpunished, will also forgive iniquity and transgression and sin. So that we can be honest about the sin that we find ourselves in and have that honesty not lead us to despair, but to anticipation of joy in the relationship with the God who has not made an end of us. Romans 5 put these, puts these two themes together. Us as undeserving sinners... And being undeserving sinners, turning us 
into a context for God showing us our hope in Christ. Romans 5, verses 6 through 11. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. And then here's that forward-looking, depending on God's mercy in Christ, hope in verse 11. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. As you have confessed your sins to the Lord, maybe even in those times when you've thought, you know what, I, 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 haven't, I haven't really recognized re recently what's still going on in me that needs to change. I haven't recognized my own remaining sin. I've been, been passive about it. I've kind of felt like, yeah, technically I know I'm a sinner. I could, I could get that answer on a test right. It doesn't really feel much like I am. And you come back and realize, what did it actually take to get me here? How did I get here? What is my spiritual heritage? You're in Christ. Your spiritual heritage has in it a picture of what your sin got, what, your, what my sin got, the results of your sin and my sin. And we have that in a picture of Jesus hanging on a cross. That's what it got, and it is what got us here. I don't know that I've found any more beautiful expression of those two truths put together of what my sin did to Jesus and of what his death did for me. I don't know that I found any more beautiful expression of that outside the Bible, but in uh, a hymn written by John Newton. John Newton was the former slave trader who became a pastor. Long story, beautiful story. And he expresses it by looking at Jesus and seeing both things. Here's what he says about himself. In evil long I took delight, unawed by shame or fear, till a new object struck my sight and stopped my wild career. I saw one hanging on a tree in agony and blood, who fixed his languid eyes on me as near his cross I stood. Sure, never to my latest breath can I forget that look. It seemed to charge me with his death, though not a word he spoke. My conscience felt and owned the guilt and plunged me in despair. I saw my sins his blood had spilt and helped to nail him there. Alas, I knew not what I did, but now my tears are vain. Where shall my trembling soul be hid? For I, the Lord, have slain. A second look he gave, which said, I freely all forgive. This blood is for thy ransom paid. I die that you might live. Thus, while his death my sin displays in all its blackest hue, such is the mystery of grace, it seals my pardon too. 
With pleasing grief and mournful joy, my spirit now is filled, that I should such a life destroy, yet live by him I killed. Father, we uh, would all have destroyed our own lives. We've all brought destruction into our lives to one degree or another. And yet, here we are, sometimes experiencing the natural results of our own sin, sometimes experiencing the results of the sins of others, and yet here we are. Our sins did not ultimately destroy us. They did kill Jesus, and yet we live by him. Father, I do ask that if there is anybody joining us this morning who has not trusted in the sufficiency of Jesus' work, that they would see him hanging on the cross, saying, I've done this for you. And Lord, for those of us that perhaps have trusted Jesus for years, I pray that you would give us a fresh view, not only of the fact that our sins have done this, but ten times over what Jesus has done for us in our sin, in giving us life by his death. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.